0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Rebecca Carroll, and this is Come Through. Fifteen essential conversations about race in a pivotal year for America. My white adoptive parents are what you might call recovering Catholics, the products of devout religious families who grew up bound and tethered to the church. They were both raised to believe that they would burn in hell if they gave in to any personal desires outside of the Bible's teaching. And so what did they do? Well, after they found each other at an art school in Boston, they left the church and rode off into the sunset with dreams of living a Bohemian life together as artists in rural New Hampshire. And that is just what they did. They lived as existentialists and atheists and artists, and after they had two biological children of their own, they adopted me. Subsequently, I was raised believing that God is a whole lot of bullshit, and that all organized religion is destructive and controlling and backwards. And I never really questioned any of it because I didn't see any reason to. The one time I went to church with a friend, I was kind of stunned by how cult-like it felt to me as people moved toward the front of the church to receive the body of Christ. None of it resonated with me at all. It wasn't until I became an adult and surrounded myself with Black friends and chosen Black family that I began to realize and really think about how so much of Black culture is historically rooted in the church. And then I felt kind of bereft that I'd grown up without this sense of legacy and connection and community. But I also still felt kind of dubious, because what even is God? And for the love of whomever or whatever God is, how do we keep the faith in him or her, it, them, right now when the world is falling apart? For a non-believer with an open mind and a strong sense of self-reliance and resilience like myself, can God sustain us when the survival of our community requires us to isolate ourselves from each other? And Once this pandemic passes, can God help us repair the damage in its wake? And what about the damage already done by the current presidential administration? Can God guide us toward electing our next president? For some direction, I reached out to one of the most famous and influential voices of faith in the world, Bishop T.D. Jakes.
1: Keep the faith. Keep the faith. If you lose a job, keep the faith. If you lose the spouse, keep the faith. If you bury your child, keep the faith. If you have to downsize, keep the faith. If you have to move in with your mama, keep the faith. If you're at your wits' end, keep the faith. If you have to catch the bus, keep the faith. If you lose your kidneys, keep the faith. If you got heart trouble, keep the faith. You might not get a new heart, but you gotta keep your faith.
0: Bishop Jakes is the pastor of the Potter's House, a non denominational megachurch in Dallas. But he also has millions of followers on Twitter and Instagram. He has a YouTube channel and his own app. He's been an advisor to George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He also recently launched the T.D. Jakes Foundation, which focuses on creating jobs for folks from underserved communities. And lately, He's been outspoken in urging people to protect themselves from the coronavirus. And that means staying home from church. Here he is on CBS This Morning.
1: We don't want to tempt faith. Uh, Jesus, during the 40 uh, days in the wilderness, was offered by the enemy chances to tempt faith. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself off the cliff. And that type of mentality is not very helpful during this time. So we don't need people to teach the kind of faith uh, to the peril and the destruction of others. We want to use the kind of faith that unites us, that connects us, that builds continuity and love, not extremism.
0: A couple of months ago, long before coronavirus hit, I got to meet and talk with Bishop Jakes. And it turns out that in conversation, he feels a lot more like a family member than a pastor. Although what do I know, really? Maybe that's what pastors are supposed to be like. But he was game for a difficult conversation and willing to go beyond his comfort zone. He came through and we went there. So. I have just shown up at your congregation. Why should I stay?
1: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you come to a congregation uh, because you have epitomized all truth. I think we all are seeking to know God and His fullness and power, and, and none of us have mastered that course. So it's seeker-friendly in terms of our welcome mat is still open to you to hear what I share and to weigh it against your own ideas and draw your own conclusions. Nobody forces you to go to church. And as one of those institutions, it is incumbent upon us to remain relevant and yet true to our core message.
0: Seeker-friendly. So that could mean seeking safety or faith or...
1: It, it could mean anything, but in this case, it meant you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it means that our doors are open and you're welcome to come. And uh, regardless to your background, it does not mean that you, would, you can't come in because you're not settled in your convictions about your faith.
0: And were you always drawn to God?
1: Yes. It's one of those nebulous things to describe. It's almost like attraction. How do you explain attraction? Uh, because there's just an inner drawing and an inner craving that introduced me to my faith and personalized it and took it away from just being the tradition of our family to a personal experience with God.
0: I mean, I guess I feel like attraction, I mean, you can probably list a few things that are, are tangible, that you're attracted to, uh,
1: you know. It's the funny thing about Christianity is its branding is a cross, which is not necessarily a, a very attractive branding. So you don't. It, it does not hide suffering, and I think suffering is a part of life. And the fact that suffering is on open display is the gateway into our belief system. Is to understand what opens up the gate to God. Is just. horrific scene of an unjustifiable slaying of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself did not hide. He said, if any man shall be my disciple, pick up his cross and follow me. So that right off at the top lets me know that there's going to be suffering and there's going to be moments in your life of peril, but you can rise above them all. That epitomizes the death, burial, resurrection story of Jesus Christ. And it really, it really describes my own life. You know, there's been many times that I've been uh, submerged in grief or submerged in joblessness or submerged in whatever and had to be, uh, resurrected. I think we continue to renew ourselves, and continue to have born-again experiences uh, over and over again. That really resonates with me in a very profound and provocative way.
0: How is that different from just regular resilience? Like, I absolutely feel that I have had to renew, but I've done it sort of what I feel of my own tenacity, of my own sense of self and wanting to live in the in, for lack of a better word, the best possible way that I can. Mm-hmm. So if it's, if it's resurrection with the help of faith or God, how is that different? Well,
1: well, you say I've done it on my own, but what do you really own? You know, that's an assumption. I've done it on my own. Really? Are you sure?
0: Well, right. I mean—
1: You, you, you understand? I do
0: understand. What I mean is I, I am not aware— of any God mm-hmm. helping me to do that. Of course, I have family and friends and, and support. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like pulling something out of yourself, you know, that, to, that kind of sense of resilience, mm-hmm. I feel like comes from within yourself.
1: Have you ever gotten a situation where resilience was not enough to get you out of and you couldn't take credit for your own comeback?
0: I don't think I would be here if I hadn't.
1: Oh, I have. I have many times been in situations where I knew it was something beyond me that made that work out, that I couldn't take credit for it, that somebody else was involved and I, I was guided to be at the right place at the right time to have the opportunity and didn't even know why I was there. I, like I've, what? I've seen people come into my life and jobs come into my life and and my spouse came into my life that way and it wasn't the result of something that I had orchestrated. Having Come from a tempestuous background. There's a deep appreciation uh, for that. Pull yourself up and make it anyway. I get it. I got that too. That's down inside of me too. And and I and I am a fight back sort of person. However, there are some things that I cannot give credit to my fight back, and yet I made a comeback. And in those cases, there's always that space for God. Now, I'm not saying that every person who's listening at us or or even you has to ascribe to my theology, but I'm just defining for me that there is a sharp distinction between willpower and providential power.
0: Yeah, I would I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole question for me. That's what I'm trying to figure. Out. That's what I'm sort of grappling with. Like, what is the difference? How do I know?
1: I think the mystery lies in, in how do I know. For the rational, reasonable person who seeks to know and to know for sure, faith does not make sense. Because faith does not ask you to know. It asks you to believe.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about where the world is going. Okay. The day after Trump was elected, you were a guest on MSNBC and you said, and I'm quoting you, we can't go into a forgiveness mode because we have so many questions that have not been answered. What does a Trump administration look like and how will it affect us? So, it's been a little over three years. What does it look like?
1: It looks like a lot of things. I mean, it looks like uh, there's been some advancements in prison reform on a federal level. There's been some—the uh, opportunity zones could, could, could be uh, a help to us. But on the other hand, it depends on who takes advantage of the opportunity zones, whether they exist or not. There's been a barrage of statements that were offensive and obnoxious and unnecessary. Uh, there have been some politics Policies that were detrimental to us as African-Americans. There's been some advancements for the country, whether they were directly attributed to him or his predecessor is an argument for somebody smarter than me to have. But there there. it looks to me like we have a deeply divided nation right now that is bigger a bigger concern to me than the person who's at the helm of it.
0: But wouldn't you say that he is the one who has perpetuated it?
1: I I, th- I think that's I think that's unfair. I think that it, it existed before him. I think it helped to create him. I think it helped to elect him. I think he's a symptom of it, but I don't think that he's the cause and the progenitor of it. Uh, and I think that he. And some of his verbiage uh, has helped to escalate the conversation and made it permissible to say things that used to be whispered or now shouted in a way that has escalated the conversation. Having said that, I think we need to attack the ideology and not the individual. And when we can circle the ideology as opposed to the individual, we open our doors to a lot of people from a lot of colors to come in and help us fight this issue. We cannot fight this fight alone just as people of color. I need to take the relationships that don't look like me. And whatever President Trump does positively or negatively, his term will soon be up either way. May go on another term.
0: So you say that, but how how can you be nonpartisan if you believe that he's going to be—he's not going to have a second term?
1: No, no, no. You didn't hear me out. Okay. He may get another term, but that's the most he can get. So— Whatever he does, good or bad, we got five more years of that. What I'm talking about is an agenda for the next 50. So it's easy to point at one person and say that they're a problem, they're a symptom, not the problem. Uh, Aggravating at times, absolutely, but not the sum total of the problem that I spent the first 43 years of my life working to fight. It cannot be dumbed down to this one person.
0: Okay, so you said something in a 2016 Washington Post article that really stayed with me. You said that racism is our grandfather's problem and yet we're still dealing with the same issue. And you were just saying how it's very close to us still. Is that part of a plan? Is that part of God's plan?
1: No, I don't think I don't think that's about God. I think that's about people and um I am named after my grandfather. My grandfather was murdered by white racists at 22 years old and uh, drowned in the barbed wire that they put Ugh. in the lake and okay. bled to death while my grandmother was pregnant. So, so please, uh, I clearly get racism. <laughs> you know, um, my my father's from Mississippi. My mother's from Alabama. Uh, I clearly have a history some of my relatives I don't know today because they were runaways uh, and uh, so I clearly get the atrocities of I'm where not we suggesting
0: came from. at all uh, and I wouldn't for a minute disrespect um, your experience um but I guess what I'm grappling with is what role does God play in our choices and the choices that we make as human beings
1: Let let me, let's let's weigh into it. I I think we're trying to have a sociological conversation with somebody who has a theological interest. And so it's, 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 I'm kind of feeling like this. But it's really interesting. uh, Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll we'll go down this road with you. Um, (laughs) Here's the thing about it. I'm living in a house my father used to brag about cleaning. You cannot say things aren't better. Many slaves, I've been, I stuck my fingers in the scratch marks in the slave castles in Ghana, and I smelt the stench of the feces of the slaves that were waiting on the ships to come. I stuck my hands in the bullet holes of Winnie Mandela's house. Uh, many slaves died at sea. The very fact that my ancestors survived the atrocities is God. uh, raped and abused and ostracized and decapitated and all of the atrocities of of our history, Uh, the very fact that we survived them and sang and rose above them and stitched our own clothes and drank pot liquor from the collard greens to get the nutrition to stay alive, and the very fact that that we ran through the woods and escaped through the waters and hid in the basement of churches and made it to the north, we are strong, resilient people, and we have benefited from the mercies of God, and a lot has changed. There's still much more to be changed, but, but you cannot look back at our history and not see... F- I cannot look back at our history and not see the hand of God pulling us through some of the most atrocious moments of life. I mean, That's the takeaway for me.
0: Right. And I'm very, very much open to believing in something. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it has to be someone. Like, for I'll give you an example. Um, when I was six years old, mm-hmm. I wrote my first essay. Mm-hmm. And it started with, My name is Rebecca Ann Carroll. I am a black child. Nobody had ever said that. Nobody talked about it. And I felt like, in retrospect, like that was a moment where the ancestors dropped in mm-hmm. to let me know and look out for me. So I believe that. Is that like God?
1: When you say it was the ancestors, you identified who it was. So well, right. No, yeah, no, yeah, I know. Yeah. But can so, God
0: be—God has to be God
1: yeah god god has to be god the, the creator beyond explanation and can, can can my ancestors are my ancestors and, and i love them both dearly uh and i feel like i think so many people are sitting in this chair it's a wonder it doesn't break All of my grandmothers and my great-grandfather and everybody I can remember and everybody I cannot is sitting in this chair with me. I did not get here by myself. And the changes that I'm talking about that have been made, that we ought to applaud while we fight for the changes that are yet to be made and that we ought to fight, march, and do whatever we can to produce does not negate the fact that we have come this far by faith and that God has brought us through tests and trials. And I will even argue that. But in some ways, we were the richer for it. Now we lag behind economically but we don't lag behind as it relates to tenacity and resilience and a sense of self-pride and dignity. And I've seen us heal in a lot of ways all the way back to the 60s. I'm black and I'm proud. And your statement, hello, my name is Rebecca, I am a black child, is symbolic of that pride and that embracing of our culture. And we have come a long ways from bleaching our skin and wanting to straighten our hair in order to be validated by another culture. Having said all of that, there's still a long ways to go and a lot to be done.
0: I'll be back with more from Bishop T.D. Jakes in just a minute. This particular moment in history, how do you how do you describe it in a spiritual way?
1: It's unsettling. It's frightening. It's disturbing. It's depressing. And uh, that is because I'm old enough to remember how hard it was to fight to get to where we were, and I see the deterioration of some of the opportunities for which my parents and their generation fought and bled and died for. Uh, As an African-American, I'm alarmed. As an American, I'm alarmed Mm -hmm. because we're better together than we are apart, and I desperately crave someone to call us together, not further apart, but where spirituality comes into it is that I am used to believing against the odds and in spite of the facts, and faith flourishes in the presence of adversity. And because I am a spiritual person, I have not given up hope that, as Dr. King said, truth smashed down to the ground will rise again undaunted. This is a smashing moment, so the rising moment has to be coming soon.
0: Amazing. This is a smashing
1: moment. And that is why I started the foundation, because I feel like I have been too blessed not to leave something behind that in some fashion helps others to escape through the holes of the relationships I've made, the people that I have met around the world who are decision makers. I am just calling them to to sit around the table and say, this is everybody's responsibility. And I want you to help me lift this because you need a workforce and we need an opportunity because we are bright minds being wasted. And the investment is cheaper than importing people from other countries at the expense of ignoring people
0: that are already here. One of the things that I really admire about the foundation is that it's about helping the new generation embrace new options. Oh yes. Yeah.
1: And it, and it's about exposure. Right. So so I'm in a meeting uh, with with a Fortune Fifty company, and they're trying to create jobs. They're primarily STEM jobs. They're trying to create jobs, and they're trying to help and make a difference. But when I go back in our neighborhoods, I don't see many little kids who say, I want to come to New York and Washington to work for a Fortune 50 company or a Fortune 100 company. No. Why not? Because they don't see it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't see it, you can't be it. I thought, how can I bridge these two worlds so that they can see it, so that they can be it, so that they can maybe enter into technology because they like arts and they like music and they want to produce and they want to do film and then they learn how to code and then they learn, all oh, this technology thing is a good thing. Those kinds of conversations, I want to work on the front end of destiny rather than the back end of history. I can't change what's behind me. But I might could change what's in front of me, and I started the foundation because while what's behind me is is horrific and was difficult, and I wish I'd have known the first TD. I wonder what he looked like. There's not even a picture of my grandfather. I've never seen him in my whole life, and I'm named after him. When I look back at my history and my and my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was a sharecropper. That ended up with property that's completely worthless now in the middle of nowhere? I can't do anything about that. Nor can the 15 kids they had, nor can the countless cousins I have behind them. We can't change that. What we can change is what's in front of us. And... That means that all of us have to come together and us being black, white, and brown people of influence and affluence and leverage what we have to lift the future because we cannot change the past.
0: How will we know when we get there?
1: We will know when we get there, when it ceases to be The object of every conversation, when we stop having the first black mayor and the first black female and the first black so-and-so, when that becomes normal and not an article, we will be there. When it becomes normal to walk out of your front door and see black kids and white kids and brown kids playing around together and laughing together and interacting with each other and falling out with each other about something other than race— When we know that a police officer who pulls us over isn't going to beat us to death because we ran a red light, that's how we'll know we got there. When we're not scared when we see blue lights, we'll know we have gotten there. We will know that we have gotten there when black women are respected and treated on the level of their worth and their integrity, we will know that we have gotten there when our sons have a future and and have an opportunity. And we will know we have gotten there when there is as much emphasis put on our schools as there are on other people's schools.
0: We have a lot of work to do. We
1: got a lot of work to do.
0: I love it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much.
1: You're, you're fascinating.
0: You ah, is so great.
1: What an honor. Oh, it's my privilege and, and uh, pleasure and, and uh, you, you surprised me. I wasn't what? expecting that. that
0: You just heard me talking with Bishop T.D. Jakes, and you can learn more about the T.D. Jakes Foundation at tdjfoundation.org. Come Through is a production of WNYC Studios. Christina DeJosa and Joanna Solitaroff produce the show, with editing by Anna Holmes and Jenny Lawton. The show is executive produced by Paula Schumann. Our technical director is Joe Clord, and the music is by Isaac Jones. Special thanks to Anthony Bancy. So what did you think? This is one of our first ever episodes, and your feedback really, really matters. So please go to wherever you listen to your podcasts and write us a review. I'm Rebecca Carroll. You can follow me on Twitter at Rebel19 to stay up to date on all things come through. Until next time.